Warning, the following podcast is not suitable for all audiences. We go into great detail with every case that we cover and do our best to bring viewers even deeper into the stories by utilizing disturbing audio and sound effects. Trigger warnings from the stories we cover may include violence, rape, murder, and offenses against children. This podcast is not for everyone. You have been warned. It's the year 1984 in Placer County, California, near the captivating Lake Tahoe. Lake Tahoe is beautiful. It's a place where many people go to unwind and have some fun. But on this day, as Mabel Harrison is driving down Highway 89, she notices a fire burning in the woods right off the road. So she pulls her car over to investigate. She also flags down another vehicle to help. Luckily, the man in that car, Robert Eden, has a fire extinguisher. And from there, they both run over to put out the flames. It's difficult for them to tell exactly what is burning in front of them. They assume it's a pile of camping gear someone left behind. But one thing they know for sure is that whatever it is, is releasing a horrible smell. Robert continues to use the fire extinguisher on the blaze. And once the flames finally die down and the smoke clears, they immediately realize that they are looking at a dead body. Soon enough, the police are on scene and start their investigation. And they eventually learn that the body found on the side of Highway 89 was a young woman. They also learn that she was alive when she was set on fire. But without knowing the girl's identity, it would be difficult to find who killed her. However, the police have some theories or maybe she hitched a ride from someone along Highway 89. Maybe the girl was running with the wrong crowd and befriended someone evil. There were so many questions as to who she was and what could have happened to her, but those questions would remain unanswered. For nearly a decade, the young woman found burning off Highway 89 was simply known as Jane Doe 487384. That is until 1983, when an arrest was made over 800 miles away in Salt Lake City. After that arrest, Jane Doe would finally be identified as 17-year-old Susan Knorr. And unfortunately, her killer wasn't an ex-boyfriend or someone she hitched a ride from. It was her own mother, Teresa Knorr. Following her arrest, investigators would unravel a string of murders linked to the unassuming woman and they would also discover one of the worst child abuse cases they had ever seen. So this is the story of the worst mom in America, Teresa Knorr. I'm Courtney Browen. And I'm Colin Browen. And you're listening to Murder in America.
The relationship between a mother and child is one of the most special relationships one can have. After all, our life begins in our mother's womb. Her body intricately forms us into little humans, and even after giving birth, remnants of our DNA remain in our mother's body forever, which is why there's a profound instinct to love and protect your children. Good moms are supposed to do everything in their power to keep their kids out of harm's way, but sadly, that's not always the case. In fact, for our story today, we will learn that the biggest threat to the Noor children was the very person who brought them into the world, a woman named Teresa Noor. Now, before she was Teresa Noor, she was Teresa Jimmy Francine Cross, born on March 14, 1946, in Sacramento, California. And as we take a look into her childhood, you'll see a disturbing pattern of abuse. Before Teresa was born, her mother, Swanee Gay, was married to a man named Harry Tapp and the two would go on to have two kids, William and Clara. However, in the 30s, Harry was in a work accident where he lost his eyesight while working on the railroads. Following this, their family did farm work, but they struggled to make ends meet. And in 1939, Harry Tapp would pass away. After the loss of her husband, Swanee was struggling in her new role as a widow with two young children. They did get some financial help from the state, but it was barely enough to get by. So in the early 40s, Swanee decided to move the family farm to the city of Broderick near Sacramento. They ended up finding a renovated chicken coop to live in, and that was about all they could afford. But Swanee was unhappy, and she knew she had to do whatever she could to get her and her children out of this bad situation. And back then, the easiest way to do that was to find a new husband. So Swanee started putting herself out there, trying to find an eligible bachelor that would take in her and her two kids. And eventually she met a man named James Cross. After a few conversations with James, he mentioned that he was getting older and he really wanted to have a son to carry out his family name. So Swanee made him a deal if he would marry her and help care for her kids, she would give him a son. And with that, on July 11th, 1942, James and Swanee drove to Reno to get married. Swanee was very thankful for her new life. Not only did she not have to worry about money anymore, but James Cross seemed to be a great catch. He had studied at the California Agricultural College at Davis and had a steady job at California's Golden State Dairy as an assistant cheesemaker. He was also too old to be drafted into World War II, so Swanee didn't have to worry about him dying at war. She and her children also got to leave the chicken coop they had been living in and were finally living in a home. Then, about two years later, Swanee and James found out they were pregnant. However, they were not very happy when they discovered it was a girl. Like we mentioned, James really wanted to have a son so he could carry on his family name. But nonetheless, they named their daughter Rosemary. And after her birth, they started trying for a second child. In 1944, Swanee became pregnant again. But to their dismay, it was another little girl who they named Teresa. With Teresa's birth on March 14, 1946, there were now four children in their home. William and Clara from Swanee's first marriage. And then Rosemary and Teresa, who were James's children. Now at this point, with all of these kids... Swanee decided to start working again, and since she wasn't home as much, 
This meant the oldest two children were now taking care of the two youngest. In fact, Clara spent so much time babysitting her younger sisters. She would miss school for weeks on end, which really affected her education. And then when she wasn't babysitting, she was working a part-time job as a server in town. Swanee and James treated Clara more like an employee than a daughter. And it was known that she and her stepdad didn't really get along. Not only did he force her to babysit all the time, but he also made the 14-year-old pay $60 a month to live at their house, which today equals about $800. That's a lot of money for a 14-year-old. In the book Mother's Day by Dennis McDougall, Clara said, quote, My stepdad was out for every dime he could get. If he knew I got tips, he'd have took those too, but he didn't know it and I didn't tell him. He was a lovely person, end quote. But interestingly enough, the oldest child, William, from Swanee's first marriage, seemed to have a pretty good relationship with his stepdad, even though he was known to get in a lot of trouble. William also got to live in their home for free, while his sister Clara had to pay rent. It was very obvious to everyone that the Cross family valued men over women. James Cross always wanted a son, and since he didn't have one of his own, he treated William like his own and completely disregarded his daughters. And James wasn't the only one who did this. Swanee didn't treat her daughters very well either. In fact, one day, Clara needed her birth certificate for a new job she was getting. And when her mother handed it over to her, she noticed that there wasn't even a name on it. The certificate only said baby tap. So Clara looks at her brother's birth certificate. And of course he had a name on his. Clara felt betrayed that her mother never took the time to give her a legal name. And it was painfully obvious to everyone that her parents favored her older brother, William. James was incredibly disappointed at the fact that he only fathered girls. The only reason he married Swanee in the first place was because he wanted a son. So for a while, he considered adopting William as his own. He and Swanee's preference for boys was so strong that William could practically do no wrong in his parents' eyes. And because of that, William had a bit of a superiority complex. He was hardly ever disciplined for his bad behavior. And over time, he became a habitual thief. While his sister Clara was babysitting their younger siblings and working to pay rent, William spent most of his time in jail for stealing. He would even go on to commit murder. But by the 1950s, both Clara and William were grown up. They eventually moved out of their parents' house and started families of their own. Now, Clara was known to visit from time to time and she still helped with her younger sisters whenever she could. But every time she would go home, she always felt bad for Rosemary and Teresa. Simply put, they just didn't have the best parents. Swanee and James weren't very present in their kids' lives. And at times, they were toxic, especially to Rosemary. You see, she was a bit heavier than her other siblings. And her parents would often make comments about her appearance. They also made Rosemary do all of the hard work around the house while Teresa got to have fun and play with her friends. It was obvious that Teresa was their favorite child. 
she was small and thin. And just like her half-brother William, she could do no wrong in her parents' eyes. From the outside looking in, the crosses seemed like your average family. However, everything was about to change when James Cross was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Parkinson's is a disease that affects the nervous system and it causes uncontrollable tremors in the head, hands, and body. Soon after James's diagnosis, his symptoms became so severe, he couldn't work anymore. He even went through a brain surgery to try and cure his Parkinson's, but it only seemed to make it worse. James Cross had always been a hard worker, and now he felt useless. He couldn't do any of the things that he used to do. And because of this, he started taking his frustrations out on his family. But life continued for the family even during these hardships. Teresa and Rosemary eventually became teenagers and both were very beautiful, but the sisters couldn't have been more different. Rosemary wasn't flattered by male attention. In fact, she was pretty uninterested in men altogether. But Teresa, on the other hand, was described as being boy crazy by her friends. One high school friend said that Teresa was always talking about sex. Unlike her sister, Teresa found a lot of value in male attention. She also treated other women as competition, even her own sister. Teresa knew that she was her parents' favorite child, but on the off chance that Rosemary was getting any attention, Teresa would go out of her way to push her sister straight out of the spotlight. Growing up, Teresa's parents had always doted on her. She was given everything she ever wanted and was rarely told no. And because of this, she developed some unfavorable qualities over the years. She was spoiled, selfish, egotistical, and everything had to go her way. But again, Swanee thought her daughter was perfect. And despite the dysfunction in their family, Teresa had a pretty good relationship with her mom. But their entire family dynamic would change on March 2nd, 1961. That afternoon, Swanee picked up Teresa from school. And afterwards, they decided to stop at the Halen Market for a little shopping. The two were very close, and Swanee loved spending quality time with her favorite daughter. After strolling through the market for a couple of hours, they grabbed their bags and started making their way back to the car. But as soon as they stepped outside, Teresa noticed that her mom had a weird look on her face. And before she knew it, Swanee collapsed to the ground. Teresa grabbed her mother by the arms and started screaming for help. And for the next few minutes, she just sat there in the parking lot, cradling her mother as she waited for an ambulance. Swanee was gasping for air. And then suddenly, Teresa watched as her eyes turned to glass. Her mother died right there in her arms, a memory that would forever flash through her mind. Swanee Cross had a history of heart problems and diabetes. The coroner also determined that she suffered from arteriosclerosis, which is the hardening of your arteries. But even with all of her health problems, Swanee's death came as a surprise to everyone, especially her daughters. 53-year-old Swanee Cross would be laid to rest at the Sunset Lawn Cemetery on March 6th, 1961, just one week and one day before Teresa's 15th birthday. Many experts that have looked at this case believe that this was the start of Teresa's mental decline. After the death of their mother, Rosemary did what she could to keep their family afloat. 
She cooked and cleaned, and she even got a job to help with the bills, since their dad's Parkinson's was advancing. Teresa, on the other hand, fell into a deep depression. Her mom was her best friend, and life without her was just unbearable. And after a while, she just wanted to escape. Life at home just wasn't the same without her mom, so she turned her attention to the thing that brought her the most joy, men. Teresa had somehow convinced a boyfriend to run away with her to Arkansas. One night when no one was around, they piled into the man's car and took off down the road with only $30 in their wallets, but they wouldn't make it very far. Along the drive, while the two were in Sparks, Nevada, Teresa's boyfriend fell asleep behind the wheel. The car veered off the road, waking her boyfriend up, and as he went to correct, he lost control of the car and the car flipped three times down the road. Somehow, there were no major injuries. Teresa's boyfriend did have to get stitches, but they came out pretty lucky. And the main thing Teresa was worried about once they got out of the car was getting in trouble with the police. She even begged her boyfriend not to say anything about them being runaways. She was terrified that not only they would put her in juvenile hall, but Teresa had a paranoia that they would find out she was having sex. But of course, as soon as the police arrived on scene, the jig was up. Her boyfriend admitted right away that they were runaways, and before they knew it, they were being brought to juvenile hall. By the time Teresa was brought home, she didn't even face any punishment. Her dad's Parkinson's was pretty severe at this point, and because she just lost her mother, he didn't think it was necessary to scold her. But Rosemary was furious with her sister, and it's here where they really started to grow apart. Rosemary and Teresa never really had a great relationship. There had always been a rift between them that went a little deeper than your average sibling rivalry. With the death of their mom, everything changed. Rosemary seemed to want to hold her sister closer, while Teresa wanted to pull away from her family entirely. Now, soon after this, Rosemary would actually get married. She eloped without ever telling her family. But interestingly enough, she didn't move out of their home. Rosemary continued living with her father, keeping her marriage a secret until eventually he found out. And when he did, he was angry. So much so, he kicked Rosemary out of the house. But this action only seemed to do more harm than good. After Rosemary moved out, the state cut James's welfare checks and they were forced to put their home up for sale. When Teresa found out about this, she was devastated. This was the only home she had ever known, the home that she lived in with her mother, and now it was being taken away. There were too many big changes going on at once. First, her mom's death, then her sister moving out, and now she had to move out of her childhood home. Teresa also had to take care of her father now that Rosemary was gone. And it's here where she figures the only way out of this horrible situation is to find a husband, a man who makes decent money and is willing to take care of her. Life would surely be much easier that way. Now, like we mentioned, Teresa had always been boy crazy, as they call it. And according to her old friends, she would often use sex as a manipulation tactic. No one could ever quite understand how Teresa was able to get boys wrapped around her finger so easily. It was almost as if she could hypnotize men, and with the snap of a finger, they would give her whatever she wanted. In the book Mother's Day, an old friend of hers named Janet said, she liked to have this power over other people, especially men. 
Janet also said that Teresa had a huge ego and often bragged about herself any chance she could. And she was beautiful, so it was easy for her to get the attention she so desperately desired. And soon enough, she would meet a man that would fall right into her trap. His name was Clifford Clyde Sanders from Alabama. He had just moved to California to make a fortune off the post-war construction boom. And as soon as he laid eyes on Teresa, he was in love. So much so that he immediately took her to meet his family. But interestingly enough, they weren't as easy to manipulate. While Clifford was smitten with his new girlfriend, his brother said that he instantly disliked her. He even pulled his brother aside and begged him to reconsider the relationship. Teresa didn't necessarily do anything that raised major red flags, but something about her just seemed off. However, Clifford was wearing rose-colored glasses and decided to ignore his brother's warnings. On September 29, 1962, Teresa and Clifford got married in Reno, Nevada. She was only a junior in high school and she had to beg for her father's permission, but he ultimately agreed and was present at their wedding. And with that, Teresa Cross was now Teresa Sanders. During the honeymoon phase of her marriage, Teresa seemed to be really happy. She enjoyed playing the role of housewife while Clifford was the breadwinner, but this blissful period wouldn't last very long. Teresa quickly learned that her husband liked to drink and get into fights. She also discovered that before they got married, Clifford was a ladies' man who had many sexual partners. And as confident as she seemed on the outside, Teresa was actually very insecure and her husband's past with women weighed heavily on her. Teresa found herself constantly worried about what her husband was doing anytime he wasn't with her. Was he sleeping with another woman? Was he getting into bar fights? These were questions that kept her up at night. But everyone that knew the couple couldn't understand why she was so insecure. Teresa was beautiful, while Clifford was a little awkward looking. People said he had, quote, buck teeth and hunched shoulders. But the main insecurity Teresa faced was her fear of losing her financial stability. Sure, Clifford wasn't the most attractive man in the world, but he had money. And she knew from experience that women love men with money, even if they aren't that attractive. So her jealousy consumed her. But about 10 months after they got married on July 16, 1963, Teresa would give birth to her first child, a boy named Howard Sanders. In her mind, this child would give her a little bit more security in their marriage. But even after Howard was born, Teresa couldn't seem to shake her jealousy. Clifford would try to reassure her that she was the only woman in his life, but she wouldn't believe him. She was convinced that he was cheating on her. And no matter what Clifford said or did, Teresa continued to press the issue. And who knows? Maybe Teresa had reasons to believe he was being unfaithful, but over time, resentment started building between them. During the first year of Howard's life, neighbors would often hear loud shouting matches between the couple. They started off as verbal fights and eventually escalated into physical violence. And because Teresa was a petite woman, Clifford always overpowered her. It's around this time when Teresa's friends noticed a change in her. She would sometimes show up unannounced at their home, sobbing, asking if she could hide out there because she was afraid of her husband. 
So clearly, there were some deep issues going on at home. But in 1964, Teresa was pregnant again. And for a while, it seemed to bring them closer. But strangely enough, a couple of months into her pregnancy, Clifford was the one who started getting insecure. He was adamant that she had been cheating on him. It's unclear if Teresa was being unfaithful, but she eventually got so fed up with the accusations, she packed up her things and moved to a small house in Galt, California with baby Howard. It was difficult being pregnant, living all by herself with a baby that wasn't even one years old. And after a while, she and Clifford decided to reconcile. He even moved to Galt just so he could be with her and the kids. But soon enough, they would go right back to fighting. Something else that led to their marital stress was that Teresa's father, James Cross, came to live with them. By that point, he was completely disabled from his Parkinson's disease and required a lot of help. So James would often witness the brutal fights between his daughter and her husband, and there wasn't much he could do to intervene. By the summer of 1964, the fights between Teresa and Clifford were worse than ever. Teresa was described as a very difficult and demanding woman and Clifford was a drunk, and the combination of those two was a recipe for disaster. In June of that year, the two got into a very heated argument that ended with Clifford beating Teresa. The fight was so bad, she immediately got into her car and drove to the Galt Police Department to press charges. However, when they took Clifford in for processing, Teresa changed her mind something that unfortunately happens in a lot of domestic disputes. From here, Clifford was released from jail and returned back home. Now, in the past, after the two would have these bad fights, there would be a grace period where they got along. But just two weeks after this incident, Teresa and Clifford would have their biggest fight yet, a fight that would lead to murder. It was July 6th, 1964. 18-year-old Teresa approached her husband in the living room and accused him of cheating on her, a fight they had had a thousand times before. In the corner of the room, 11-month-old Howard was playing with his toys as his parents screamed in the background. Teresa was accusing Clifford of being unfaithful and Clifford was accusing her of the same. In fact, he said he didn't even think the baby in her womb was his. The fight escalated so quickly, Clifford told Teresa that he was done with her for good. He stormed out of the living room into his bedroom where he started packing his bags. The two had threatened divorce in the past, but this time, Teresa could tell he was serious. How could you, she screamed. How could you abandon your family? According to Teresa, Clifford said that he would beat her again if she tried to stop him. He also said he would take all of their money and leave her and the kids to fend for themselves. Hearing this, Teresa was angry. She was not about to let him leave and take away everything she had worked for. Sitting in the corner of their bedroom was a Winchester lever action deer rifle. So Teresa grabbed it pointed it at her husband and pulled the trigger. After being shot, Clifford stumbled forward and then collapsed to the ground dead. And in that moment, the reality of the situation came flooding in. Teresa began plotting her next moves. She calmly set the rifle against the wall, grabbed baby Howard from the living room 
and then ran to her neighbor's house in hysterics. Her neighbor happened to be a deputy sheriff named Fred Mays. When he opened the door, he saw Teresa crying, holding her son. She quickly explained to him that she and her husband had gotten into an argument, and at the end of it, he grabbed a rifle. Teresa said that Clifford wasn't trying to shoot her with the rifle, but he was going to beat her with the butt of the gun. So she fought back. Teresa said she tried to get the gun out of Clifford's hands. And when she did, it accidentally discharged and shot him. She also said that she didn't expect the gun to quote, hurt him that badly. Now from here, Deputy Mays quickly ran over to Teresa's home to check on Clifford. But as soon as he saw him, he knew it was too late. There on the ground, he found 23-year-old Clifford Sanders dead in a pool of blood. At first glance, he noticed a gunshot wound to his left wrist. It looked like a defensive wound, like he was trying to hold his hand up to block the bullet, but the bullet ended up going through his wrist and directly into his heart. Deputy Mays immediately called for backup. When he walked back outside, Teresa was sitting on her front lawn in hysterics. She was rocking her baby in her arms, asking the same question over and over. Is he going to be okay? But Clifford wasn't okay. He was dead. Once police and first responders arrived, they quickly placed her in a police car to take her to the station. And it was along that ride where she learned that her husband was dead. Teresa screamed at the top of her lungs. And once she was brought into the station, she told detectives the same story she told Deputy Mays. That Clifford came after her, trying to beat her with the rifle and she accidentally shot him while she was trying to pry it from his hands. It was a believable story, especially since she had just been to the police station weeks prior to report her husband's abuse. It was no mystery that Clifford would beat Teresa. The Galt police knew that they had a history of domestic assault, so it would have been easy to believe Teresa's story. The only problem was, the evidence at the scene painted a far different picture. The first inconsistency detectives noticed was that Clifford was not shot at close range. Typically, when someone is shot with a gun right up to their skin, there will be powder burns, but Clifford didn't have any. If Teresa had been trying to pry the gun from his hands like she claimed, then why wasn't there evidence of that? Even further, the gunshot wound to Clifford's wrist proved that he held his hand up to defend himself which meant that Teresa had to have at least been a couple of feet away when he was shot. The prosecutor wholeheartedly believed that Teresa Sanders was not a battered wife defending herself, but a cold-blooded killer, and she would eventually be charged with first-degree murder. On September 10th, 1964, the pregnant 18-year-old walked into the Sacramento County Grand Courthouse for her murder trial and it would be a controversial one. The evidence at the murder scene did not match Teresa's story, but with Clifford's history of physical abuse, it wouldn't be hard to convince the jury that Teresa shot her husband in self-defense. Her attorneys painted a horrible and honest picture of what life was like in their home. They went into detail on how Clifford would come home drunk and beat his pregnant wife. He would punch her repeatedly, put cigarettes out on her skin, and kick her. 
The defense also brought forth a witness that testified about the times when Teresa would show up to their house trying to hide from her abusive husband. A psychologist would evaluate Teresa and they said that she was an anxious and fearful woman who was deeply remorseful about how everything played out. Teresa also took the stand in her trial and she cried as she told the jury about the horrific abuse she endured at the hands of her husband. She said that when Clifford grabbed the rifle that day, she truly believed that she and her baby's lives were in danger. The jury seemed to be moved by the young pregnant woman's testimony, but the prosecution did everything they could to try and show the jury that the evidence just didn't add up. If Teresa were being attacked that morning, she had every right to shoot and kill her husband, but they had evidence that that wasn't the case. They showed them the gunshot wounds and how Clifford couldn't have been shot at close range, like Teresa claimed. They showed them the defensive wounds where he tried to shield the bullet, and they also brought up the fact that Teresa told Deputy Mays that she didn't expect the gun to hurt him that badly. Teresa said that she accidentally shot Clifford, but then she told the deputy that she didn't think it would kill him. It just didn't add up. Even further, everyone that knew Clifford said that he always kept that gun loaded, but the safety was always on. So the fact that it was discharged that day meant that someone had to have turned the safety off, cocked it, and then pulled the trigger which wouldn't be very easy to do in the midst of a struggle over the gun. The prosecution also brought forward a witness with a very compelling testimony. It was Clifford's own sister, Lydia Hansen. Lydia told the jury that Teresa was a very jealous and controlling woman. She said that two months before her brother's murder, Teresa came over and made a comment about how she would rather kill Clifford then let another woman have him. Teresa even said, quote, I have a gun loaded and he better walk a chalk line or I'll kill him. Then afterwards, she said, I would use ant poison, but that would show up in an autopsy. Teresa laughed like it was a joke. And of course, Lydia didn't think she was serious. However, there was one day when Lydia came to visit them and Clifford pulled her aside and pointed to a hole in the floor. He told his sister that Teresa had tried to shoot him, but missed. Surprisingly, at the end of Lydia's testimony, she told the jury that although she believed Teresa was guilty of Clifford's murder, she wanted her acquitted so that her brother's children could grow up with their mom. Everyone was shocked upon hearing her say this, and it seemed to be the turning point of the trial. It was obvious from the beginning that the jury had a soft spot for the pregnant 18-year-old, despite the conflicting evidence. And now with Clifford's own sister asking for an acquittal, Teresa's fate was sealed. As the jury read their verdict, Teresa emotionally held her hands to her mouth and she let out a sigh of relief when they found her not guilty on the grounds of self-defense. And I don't know if I blame the jury, Teresa had a very compelling case. Not only was she young and pregnant, but she was also a master manipulator who was really good at telling stories. It's also definitely true that Teresa was a victim of physical abuse. I mean, when she showed up to the police station two weeks before the murder, there were bruises around her neck from Clifford choking her. But based on the evidence at the scene, it's widely believed that Teresa was not being attacked on the day she murdered her husband. She was likely fed up with the abuse. 
and the thought of Clifford leaving her and the kids with no money was terrifying. And like she told Lydia, Clifford's sister, she would rather kill him than let him walk out on their family. So Teresa made do on her promise. And based on the crime she would later commit, it seems like Teresa was indeed a cold-blooded killer at heart. But no one would know this until decades later. After she was acquitted, Teresa tearily thanked the jury and even hugged some of them for sparing her life. Outside of the courthouse, she told the media, all I want to do is go home and take care of my baby. She was ready to move on with her life, but she did have one thing she still needed to do. The day after her acquittal, Teresa marched into the prosecutor's office and demanded that they give her the gun that was used to kill her husband. Prosecutor Donald Dorfman said she just waltzed right in, and with no emotion, she grabbed the murder weapon saying, this is mine, and then marched right back out. Teresa didn't even care much about the gun. She just honestly wanted to mock the prosecutor that tried so hard to put her behind bars. After the trial, Teresa didn't seem to be affected by the fact that she took her husband's life. In fact, some even said she had a bit of a pep in her step. Teresa felt invincible. And almost immediately, she starts looking for another man to support her and the kids. Now, one would think that it would be kind of difficult to find a man when you're pregnant and you just had a murder trial for killing your husband. But surprisingly, that wasn't the case for Teresa. She was beautiful, charming, and she still had that ability to captivate men. While she was out on the town trying to find the next eligible bachelor, her son Howard was put on the back burner. In her mind, he was holding her back. But eventually, a man named Lee Thornsbury would cross paths with Teresa, and it wouldn't take long for him to fall in love. Lee financially supported her, and he even took in Howard as his own and would constantly babysit him while Teresa continued to date other men. She knew that Lee would do anything for her, so she took advantage of him. Eventually, on March 16, 1965, Teresa would give birth to her second child, Sheila Gay Sanders. Her kids, Howard and Sheila, were dealt a pretty bad hand. Their father had been murdered by their mom, and Teresa was a horrible parent. Of course, her kids were always fed and they had roofs over their heads, but she wasn't emotionally invested in them. Teresa felt like being a mother was a chore, but on the rare occasion she did feel like showing her kids affection, it was always directed towards Howard. If you remember from her childhood, Teresa's parents always favored her older brother. They valued boys more than they valued girls. And it seemed like Teresa did the same with her children. In fact, people that knew her said that Teresa completely ignored her daughter, Sheila. On one occasion, a friend came to visit them and she said that baby Sheila was crying on the ground. She was reaching up towards her mother, wanting to be picked up, but Teresa refused. Instead, she picked up her son, Howard. The friend said she felt horrible for baby Sheila. It was clear she just wanted some affection. So hoping to soothe the crying child, the friend went to pick her up. But as she did, Teresa scolded her. Don't pick her up, she said. 
as she cradled her son in her arms. When the friend asked why, Teresa responded that Sheila needed to grow up the same way she did. My parents favored my brother growing up, so that's how it's going to be for her. She'll be fine. Look how I turned out, she said. Teresa was clearly delusional. She was a horrible person who neglected every person that came into her life. Her boyfriend, Lee, was treated horribly as well. While he was paying their bills and watching her young children, Teresa would go out partying almost every night. Some nights she would even go home with other men, cheating on Lee any chance she could. Eventually, he became fed up with the way he was being treated and he finally broke up with her. But she wouldn't remain single for very long. Robert Knorr, who went by Bob, was a tall blonde and blue-eyed Marine, and he was the perfect replacement. When Bob met Teresa, she quickly put him under her spell, and he thought he had met the woman of his dreams. She was everything that he had ever wanted. Interestingly enough, Bob was a virgin when they got together, which was very exciting for Teresa. Unlike her exes who had been ladies' men, Bob was inexperienced, so she was excited to show him the ropes. And by 1966, when Bob left for Vietnam, Teresa was pregnant with his child. When Bob finally came back home from the war, Teresa was in a hurry to get married. And on July 9th, 1966, Teresa Sanders became Teresa Knorr, the name so infamously tied to one of the worst child abuse cases in America. It also didn't take Bob very long to finally see Teresa's true colors. Before they tied the knot, his family tried to warn him against marrying her. Like many people in the past, something about Teresa just didn't sit right with them. They thought she was extremely rude and they felt like she was hiding something. And Bob quickly learned that his family was right. As soon as they got married, she turned into a completely different person. She was mean, demanding, and condescending. Bob is quoted in the book Mother's Day as saying, quote, Once I said I do, she said, you will. Now, interestingly enough, before she married Bob, Teresa had put her father, James, in an assisted living. With his Parkinson's disease, she was tired of having to take care of him. But then, after she married Bob, she moved her father back into her home. Now, it wasn't because she was a good daughter. The only reason she moved him back home was because she wanted his money. Immediately after James came to live with them, Teresa started collecting his retirement and social security checks. And on top of that, she took all of her husband's money too. Teresa was fully in control of all of the money in their household, something that narcissists often do. It gives them full control over everyone in the house while they get to spend the money however they want. Her husband, Bob, also couldn't help but notice the terrible way Teresa treated her daughter, Sheila. Anytime Sheila would cry, like normal babies do, she would give her this icy glare. Immediately, Sheila knew to stop crying because if she didn't, Teresa would beat her. At just 18 months old, Sheila had learned how to deal with her mother's rage. Howard, on the other hand, could get away with a lot more. He would misbehave and Teresa wouldn't care. But if Sheila did the same thing as her brother, Teresa would yank her up by the arm, beat her, and then force her to sit in front of a blank TV, watching the screen for hours. At first, Bob didn't understand why Teresa disliked her daughter so much but he would later learn that Teresa blamed Sheila for having to kill her ex-husband, Clifford. Throughout their relationship, Clifford believed that Teresa had been cheating on him, 
and he was convinced that Sheila wasn't his child. In fact, they were arguing about it on the day that he was murdered. So in Teresa's mind, Sheila was responsible for Clifford's death and all the chaos that came after it. And for that, she resented her daughter. Bob watched from afar as his wife abused young Sheila, and he didn't do much to stop it. But it did worry him, especially since they had a little girl on the way. Susan Knorr was born on September 27, 1966. She was Teresa's third child and Bob's first. And soon after she was born, she would receive the same treatment as her sister, Sheila. During dinner time, Susan would often throw her food, which is inevitable with infants. And when she did, Teresa would blow up in a rage, screaming at her baby. She was very particular about cleanliness. And if any of her children made a mess, they could always expect a beating, no matter how young they were. Bob and Teresa would go on to have two more children. William Robert Knorr was born on September 15, 1967, and he was named after Teresa's delinquent older brother, William Tapp. Then a year later, Robert Wallace Knorr Jr. was born on December 31, 1968. Bob and Teresa's marriage was becoming more and more volatile. Teresa had also grown more insecure, just like she did in all of her previous relationships. After a while, she started accusing Bob of cheating on her. She even told him that if she ever found him with another woman, she would kill him, just like she did with Clifford. Her constant allegations of cheating and infidelity put a rift in their marriage. The two were constantly fighting, and Teresa was known to throw some really low blows. She would tell Bob that he was ugly. She would point at his scars he got from war and call him hideously disfigured. And she threatened to kill him all the time. Eventually, Bob started distancing himself from his wife. But Teresa would just redirect her anger towards her daughters, Sheila and Susan. In her eyes, her three sons could do no wrong. But as for her girls, they couldn't seem to do anything right, and they were often the brunt of their mother's rage. Teresa even blamed them for what childbirth did to her body. When she looked in the mirror and saw her stretch marks, she didn't see a body that gave her five beautiful children. Instead, she was disgusted with herself. There's an old wives' tale that when you're pregnant with girls, they steal some of their mother's beauty. And for Teresa's entire life, she placed a lot of value on her outward appearance. And she couldn't help but blame her daughters for taking some of that away from her. Bob Knorr did what he could to keep their marriage alive, but it was hard. Teresa only seemed to care about herself and had little regard for him and the kids. One evening, she was supposed to pick him up after he got off duty, but Bob waited and waited and Teresa never showed so he found his own way home. However, when he unlocked the door and stepped inside, the house was empty. Everything was gone, including his wife and kids. While Bob had been on duty, Teresa had packed up their entire home and moved into another house in the city of Rio Linda. She was over their marriage and was ready to move on. Bob tried to reason with her. He wanted to give their marriage another chance. And surprisingly, Teresa agreed. But after a few weeks, Bob was the one that decided to leave. He was tired of constantly fighting and the cheating accusations. He also feared for his life, as Teresa constantly threatened to kill him. 
So in June of 1969, they would file for divorce. Teresa was actually the one who filed it, claiming she faced extreme cruelty at the hands of her husband, and she did that to punish him. From what we could find, Bob wasn't a bad husband, and if anyone was cruel in their marriage, it was Teresa. The court would end up declaring her the best fit parent for the children, which was pretty common back in the 60s and 70s. Plus, Bob's job as a Marine made it to where he was gone for sometimes months on end. So it only made sense that the kids would live with Teresa, and she was very happy about this. Not because she cared about her children's well-being, but by taking away Bob's children, she was punishing him for leaving her. And once the divorce was filed, she packed up all of their things and moved her family to Spokane, Washington. Now, believe it or not, she and Bob continued to see each other, even though they were right in the middle of a divorce, which was really confusing for the kids. But after a couple of months of living in Spokane, Teresa realized that she hated it there. She thought that moving there would solve all of their problems, but she didn't like the snow and gloomy weather. So after a brief stay, she moved her family back to Sacramento. She hoped that in doing so, she and Bob could save their marriage. She even got pregnant again with his child, a girl they would name Teresa after herself. However, before the child was born, Bob decided to leave Teresa for good. He realized that she was never going to change and he couldn't live the rest of his life with her. So he moved on. Eventually, he even started dating another woman named Georgia. However, on multiple occasions while he and Georgia were out on dates, Teresa would just show up and start hurling insults at his new girlfriend. Teresa was stalking him and she was furious that he had moved on with someone else while she was pregnant with his child. Their daughter, Teresa Terry Marie Knorr, was born on August 5th, 1970, the same day Bob asked Georgia to marry him. And even though Bob was really happy in his new relationship, he missed his children. But sadly, Teresa wouldn't let him see them as much as he wanted. And soon enough, Teresa found another man named Ron Pulliam. Not long after they started dating, they too would get married. But their marriage went the same direction as Teresa's first two marriages, with accusations of cheating flying both ways. Only now, Teresa had developed a drinking habit, which eventually led to their divorce. From there, she and her six children moved into a little white house on the corner of Bellingham Way in Sutton Place. And it's clear that she was going through a rough time. After moving in, Teresa racked up a ton of credit card debt, buying furniture for her new home. She had always had a bit of a shopping addiction, but it was now getting out of hand. She had no money, and the family was struggling. But even though she was broke, Teresa cared a lot about her family's image. And she spent a lot of money trying to make it seem like they were wealthy. She would dress her children up in designer clothing. Her house was always perfectly clean. Her kids were also very well behaved. Anytime they went out, her kids were always polite and respectful. And from the outside looking in, it seemed as though they were a well put together family. But behind closed doors, her six kids went through hell at the hands of their mother. After school, they would go to play with other kids in the neighborhood. And if they ever came home dirty or late, they would have to face Teresa's wrath. They couldn't even walk into the house with a smile on their face. 
For whatever reason, if they were too happy, Teresa would pull out her paddle, a one inch thick and four foot long piece of wood with a grip at the end. She used this paddle to beat her children any chance she could. She even named it the Board of Education. The Noor children were constantly walking on eggshells around their mother. At any moment, even when they weren't doing anything bad, they could expect her to come around the corner with the paddle and start swinging. It was very scary inside of their household. And it was also very inconsistent. Interestingly enough, Teresa would also go through these phases where she zoned out. The children could misbehave and it was like she didn't even realize they were there. It was really strange and the kids never really knew what to expect of their mom. Her children also quickly learned that their mom was a pathological liar. Teresa was constantly making up stories so that people would feel bad for her. For instance, she had put on a little weight as she got older, and she blamed it on a missing pituitary gland that she had removed during her teen years. But this obviously never happened. She also told people that she had a twin brother in the womb who had died, and that's why her middle name was Jimmy. Now, this wouldn't be too difficult to believe, but it just simply wasn't true. Teresa was a liar, and it's around this time when she also became obsessed with religion. Teresa was constantly reading the Bible, and she even claimed she was descended from the biblical tribe of David, and that her father's side of the family came from a long line of crosses that demons wanted to wipe off the face of the earth. And as she got deeper into her religion, Teresa started to become overly paranoid about everything, especially when it came to her kids. Once during a parent-teacher conference, Terry's teacher greeted Teresa by saying, I've heard a lot about you, a completely innocuous statement. But Teresa was furious with her daughter. When they got home that night, she screamed, what have you been telling them about me? Terry was confused. She didn't say anything negative about her mom. She tried explaining this to Teresa, but she wouldn't listen. And for her punishment, her mother put her inside of a deep freezer it was one of those large freezers that people often keep in their garages. And to make sure Terry wouldn't escape, Teresa and her oldest son, Howard, sat on top of it. This was one of the first times where Teresa used her sons to help abuse her daughters. And it definitely wouldn't be the last. Like we mentioned, Teresa always directed her abuse towards her daughters. In another instance, her youngest daughter, Terry, came home in some old name brand clothing. Terry's friend had given it to her because she didn't want them anymore, and Terry was happy to accept. But when Teresa saw this, she became enraged. In her mind, Terry was telling people that they didn't have enough money for clothes. And because she cared so deeply about their image, she was pissed. For Terry's punishment, she made the six-year-old strip naked and stand with her face against the door. Her mother then looped a rope around her neck, draped it over the door, and instructed one of her sons to hold it tight so that Terry was completely stretched out on her tippy toes. Teresa then got a switch and beat every inch of Terry's body until she nearly passed out. She was known to do things like this with all of her kids, but especially with her daughters. 
She would beat them so hard they would have deep purple bruises all over their bodies. And then afterwards, she would make them take ice baths so that the bruises wouldn't be as noticeable. When Teresa wasn't physically abusing her children, she was emotionally abusing them. They never really knew what to expect of their mother. If they hugged her too much, Teresa would question their loyalty to her. She thought their affection was a manipulation tactic. But then on the other hand, if they didn't hug her enough, Teresa would call them evil kids who didn't love their mother. Her youngest, Terry, reported that Teresa beat them constantly, and they knew that one of her biggest triggers was when she would drink, which she did often. When Teresa would leave the house to go out and party, her oldest son, Howard, would be in charge of watching his siblings. And then when she came home drunk, they could always expect her to go off in a rage. Throughout these years, Teresa was also desperate to find a husband. She and her six kids were living paycheck to paycheck, and she really wanted to find someone that would support her spending habits. But it wasn't easy. The men in town weren't necessarily jumping to marry a woman with six children, so Teresa had to turn on the charm, and eventually, she would find someone to put under her spell. His name was Chet Harris, and he would go on to be Teresa's fourth and final husband. Chet Harris was a wealthy former journalist with a drinking problem. He was also 59 years old and Teresa was still in her 30s. But she didn't care because he had money. And just days after meeting him, Teresa convinced Chet to marry her. Soon after, she was also able to convince him to take out a second mortgage so they could buy a new home. Chet even paid to have the house renovated. But during the build, Teresa discovered something about her new man that sent her into a rage. In his belongings, she found a collection of explicit photos he had of his ex-wives. And Chet didn't even seem to care when Teresa started fuming. He had problems of his own, and he was definitely no angel. On top of his drinking problem, Chet also had a pornography addiction that caused many fights. Teresa was so angry with him she would even sleep with a gun under her pillow just to scare him. Chet was terrified of her. He knew without a shadow of a doubt that Teresa would kill him if she had the chance. He also knew that she would likely get away with it, just like she did with her first husband, Clifford. Now, Teresa's children were not big fans of Chet. According to them, he was a mean man that often abused them. They said that Chet really loved to scare the children any chance he could, which isn't necessarily abusive in and of itself, but he had this sick thing where he loved to see the look of fear on their faces. He also called Teresa's children horrible names like coward and unintelligent. He even called Sheila a dog. It was obvious that he didn't like her kids, but interestingly enough, he really got along with Teresa's daughter, Susan. He thought Susan was intelligent and he really enjoyed their conversations. The two would often talk about literature and politics and it was clear that Susan was very smart. And she was. In school, her teachers discovered that Susan was about four years ahead of the other children her age. So she was put in accelerated classes. Susan was beautiful, just like her mom, but she was also painfully shy and insecure due to the years of physical and emotional abuse. But with her new stepdad, Susan found some peace. 
she finally had an adult that respected her, someone she looked up to. And soon enough, Teresa began looking at Susan not as a daughter, but as a threat. Seeing Chet and Susan bond sent Teresa into a jealous rage. Even further, Chet would talk to Susan about Greek mythology and the occult. And in Teresa's religious mind, he was corrupting her daughter. After just three months of marriage, in November of 1976, Teresa would file for divorce. Unlike in all of her previous marriages, she told the judge that Chet was a womanizer and an abuser. She stated in an affidavit for her court proceedings that he forced her to pose for nude photos, and when she refused, he threw them out, which wasn't the case. She also stated that Chet had attempted to choke her, and because of this, she filed a restraining order against him. Teresa Knorr was a manipulative woman that always got what she wanted. She took so much money from Chet in the divorce that she left him broke. And it seems like after this, Teresa was finally over trying to find a man. She realized over the years that they only seemed to add chaos to her life. After her divorce, she also lost credit within the social circles of her community, and it seemed as though she fell off the map completely. So it's here where she decides to sell her home and move into a small apartment across town. By then, her oldest son Howard had moved into a place of his own. He was an adult now and tired of his mother's abuse. But this only made Teresa more aggressive with her other children. Her daughters, Sheila, Susan, and Terry would get beat almost daily. And Teresa would force her sons to hold the girls down while she repeatedly beat them with the paddleboard. It's also around this time when Teresa became more of a recluse. Not only did she never leave the house, but none of her kids were allowed to leave either unless they were going to school. Teresa also got rid of their house phone because she didn't want any calls coming in. And it's here where we really start to see a mental decline. Teresa gained a lot of weight. She hardly ever showered and she would wear the same clothes for days on end. Neighbors would hear screaming coming from their unit almost every night. According to her children, Teresa would get drunk and sometimes lick the edges of serrated steak knives. With blood dripping down her face, she would then throw the knives at them, evaluating her aim. Her children lived in constant fear of their mother and she threatened to kill them all the time. One evening, her youngest daughter, Terry, was sitting in their apartment when her mother walked in in a drunken rage. The kids usually didn't even do anything to upset their mom. Teresa would just be in a bad mood and she direct her anger towards one of her daughters. On this night, Teresa grabbed a 22 and aimed it at her daughter, Terry, telling her, quote, I shot once, I can do it again. Horrified, Terry tried to get away from her mom. And in response, Teresa chased her throughout the house and pressed the 22 right up against her forehead. She pressed it so hard Terry woke up the next morning and could see a circular bruise from where her mom had pressed the gun. It seemed as if Teresa would go through periods of remorse. After weeks of severe abuse, she would take her children on trips or give them nice gifts. But these periods of remorse were always short-lived. And soon enough, the cycle of abuse would continue. If her kids left their rooms dirty or left a dish out in the kitchen, Teresa would beat them and lock them in their room for days. And as her mental health got worse, Teresa would also scream Bible scriptures at them. 
The kids knew that when their mom pulled out the Bible, they were about to get the beating of a lifetime. Teresa was also known to take scripture and twist their meanings to support her reasoning for beating her kids. She was falling deep into the fire and brimstone type religion. And after a while, Teresa believed that they had a witch living in their home. And that witch was Susan. Like we mentioned, Teresa's ex-husband Chet had a special relationship with her daughter Susan. Susan loved to learn about different subjects. And while Chet was still living with them, she would often listen intently as he talked about the occult and Greek mythology. Teresa always hated that Chet and Susan had a special relationship. And now, months later, as she's mentally declining, Teresa wholeheartedly believed that Chet was a demon and that her daughter, Susan, was a witch. And from then on, Susan would face unimaginable torture at the hands of her mother. She would get beat almost daily. Her mother would withhold food and put out cigarettes on Susan's skin. Teresa even pulled her out of school, the one place where Susan felt any sort of peace. In an early 1980, 15-year-old Susan had finally had enough. One night, while her mother was sleeping, she decided to run away. However, she wouldn't make it very far. The police eventually brought Susan in and she begged them not to bring her back home. Susan told the officers about the abuse she and her siblings faced every single day. She told them about the beatings, the cigarette burns, everything. But the police didn't listen. They brought Teresa into the station and listened to her side of the story. And like always, Teresa turned on the charm. Dressed in designer clothing, with her hair and makeup perfectly done, Teresa told them that Susan was a troubled child who was prone to lying. And from there, Susan was released back to her mother. On the way out of the station, Teresa kept a smile on her face. They got back into the car and as soon as they drove off, Susan watched as her mom's smile gradually faded into a look of fury. Once back at their home, Teresa called all the siblings into the living room. She then told each of them to punch Susan in the stomach as hard as they could. So down the line, they each approached their sister and punched her. If they didn't do it hard enough, Teresa would make them do it again. One thing important to note about this is that her siblings didn't want to partake in the abuse. They had to. If they wouldn't, their mother would abuse them. And Teresa's punishments were so severe, the children did whatever they could to avoid it. But following this, Teresa directed almost all of her anger towards Susan. At night, she would handcuff her to the bed. She didn't want her daughter to try and run away again. And she was convinced that Susan would try sneak out and perform witchcraft. It didn't matter how many times Susan told her mom that she wasn't a witch, she just didn't believe it. During the day, Teresa would beat Susan and she wouldn't stop beating her until her daughter was screaming at the top of her lungs from the pain. Then Teresa would give her sedatives throughout the day to keep her quiet. Teresa also blamed Susan for her weight gain. I'm not really sure what her reasoning was for that, but she was incredibly jealous of her daughter. Susan was beautiful with a nice figure and her mom couldn't stand it. At dinner time, she would handcuff Susan to the table and force her to eat large amounts of food. She would put all of these plates in front of her filled with macaroni and cheese or mashed potatoes. And she wouldn't let Susan leave the table until she finished 
all of it, every last bite. There were times when Susan would sit at the table for hours crying, begging her mom to let her get up, but she wouldn't let her. If Susan refused to eat all of the food, her mom would then force feed her, shoving the food down her throat. There were times when Susan ate so much food, she would throw up at the dinner table. And from there, Teresa would make her eat her vomit. The youngest daughter, Terry, recalled one time where her mom shoved a metal spoon in her mouth so forcibly, it chipped her tooth. Life inside of their household was hell, and it soon began to take a toll on Susan. One night in 1983, she was so fed up with the abuse, Susan started mumbling to herself. Hearing this, Teresa was convinced even further that her daughter was a witch. So she cornered her and began yelling at the demon she thought was inside of her. Teresa screamed that the demon was causing her to gain weight and Susan was to blame. From here, Teresa ordered her sons to restrain their sister. The boys grabbed Susan by the arms and started leading her towards a bedroom when all of a sudden they heard a loud gunshot. There was a brief silence that filled the air. No one really knew what was going on, but then Susan let out a scream. There in her chest was a gunshot wound and feet away, Teresa was still holding the smoking gun. After seeing what she had done to her daughter, she quickly ran to Susan's side, filled with remorse. Teresa and her sons then put Susan in a bathtub. While the bullet missed all vital organs, she was very much in danger. So Teresa did what she could to help. While Susan laid screaming, her mother put her finger inside of the bullet wound. There was an entry wound, but there was no exit wound, meaning the bullet was still lodged inside of her body. Teresa was filled with regret. She even looked Susan in the eyes and said, I'm so sorry. To which Susan replied, I forgive you. You know I love you. After shooting her daughter in the chest, Teresa refused to take Susan to the hospital. She knew that if she did, she would go to jail. Now, because the bullet missed all vital organs, Susan didn't die right away, but she was in rough shape. Her mother kept her in the bathtub for a whole month while she did what she could to nurse her back to health. Susan's siblings were horrified. They wanted to tell the police about what happened, but they were scared. They saw what happened to their sister when she tried to report the abuse and they didn't want to face the same fate. So they kept their mouths shut as their sister sat in the bathroom for a month with a bullet lodged inside of her. Now, during the day, Teresa was working at a healthcare facility caring for the sick and elderly, which is a scary thought. And while she was gone, her other children would look after Susan, but eventually she somehow recovered from her injuries. The wound healed up and she could move around again. The only problem was that the bullet was still lodged inside of her. It actually sat in her back, just below her shoulder blade, and it would remain there for about a year. Throughout that time, Susan was on her best behavior. After being shot by her mother, she wasn't willing to test the waters, so she did just what she was told, but it still didn't stop her mother's abuse. In fact, every night, Susan was forced to sleep on that cold, hard ground, 
She was still being handcuffed to the dinner table every night, but because of her injury, she had lost a ton of weight. Teresa even forced Susan into sex work, which she actually enjoyed because it meant she didn't have to be at home with her mom. But of course, Teresa would take all the money that she earned. Now, one would think that after shooting your daughter in the chest, you'd be a little more careful, but that wasn't the case for Teresa. In the summer of 1984, Teresa threw a pair of scissors at Susan like a dart, and the blade stuck into her back. And it was here where Susan started planning her escape. She desperately wanted out. She wanted to leave home and never see her mom again. That very night, Teresa came home drunk and Susan noticed that she was in a good mood, something that rarely ever happened. But anytime it did, the kids took advantage of it. So Susan approached her mom and said, I wanna move to Alaska. I wanna start my life there. And if you let me leave, I will go and you'll never have to see me again. Teresa thought about it for a second. For most parents, the thought of never seeing your child again would be heartbreaking. But for Teresa, it actually sounded kind of nice. The only problem was the bullet was still lodged in Susan's back. The last thing Teresa wanted was for Susan to go to the authorities and have her arrested for attempted murder. So she told her daughter that she could go under one condition. You have to let me extract the bullet, she said. The thought of her mom performing a surgery on her was terrifying, but not as terrifying as having to live under her roof for one more day. So Susan agreed. That night, she took some sedatives and drank a full bottle of whiskey to numb the pain. She then laid down on a blanket while Teresa retrieved a sharp knife. From here, her mother pressed the knife into her back and began cutting away at her skin and muscle. She then attempted to find the bullet, but after a few minutes, she couldn't find it. So she handed the knife to her 15-year-old son, Robert. He had to dig his fingers deep inside of his sister's back until he eventually found it and pulled it out. Teresa was pleased with how the amateur surgery went about, but hours and hours would pass and Susan still hadn't woken up. She wouldn't wake up until about 24 hours later. And when she did, it was clear that something had gone horribly wrong. Susan's eyes were yellow. The skin on her back was dark black and she had no control over her bowels. She also couldn't even speak, but occasionally she would let out these piercing screams. Something clearly went wrong during the surgery, but Teresa was not about to take her to the hospital. She tried to give Susan some antibiotics, but nothing seemed to work. For days, she laid on the floor in diapers, rolling in and out of consciousness. The other Nor children were forced to watch in horror as Teresa told them that they were not allowed to help her or call for medical aid. So they were forced to simply walk over their sister's dying body. And as the days went on, Teresa was finally tired of trying to save her. So she turned to her kids and said, we gotta get rid of Susan. She's going to die on us. We're going to have to kill her. That night on July 16th, 1984, 
Teresa took all of the photos she had of Susan and burned them. She then grabbed all of Susan's belongings and put them in the trunk of her car. From there, she ordered her sons, William and Robert, to pick Susan up and put her in the back seat. And for the next few hours, they drove around in complete silence. Susan's brothers had propped her up in the seat so that she looked normal to anyone driving by. But in reality, Susan was bound, wearing a diaper, and she was dying. Teresa had been trying to find a secluded place to dump her dying child. And eventually, they ended up in Squaw Valley. Once the car came to a stop, Teresa ordered her sons to carry Susan over to a spot in the woods, just off the road. 16 and 15-year-old William and Robert were horrified, but they listened to their mother's orders and placed their sister on the ground with her belongings. Teresa then pulled a gallon of gasoline out of the trunk, and like a pile of trash, she poured it all over Susan's body. She then handed her sons a match and said, light her up. There was a coldness to her voice that sent a shiver down their spine. And from there, they did what they were told. The flame was thrown down onto Susan's body. And over the next few minutes, she burned alive on the side of Highway 89. By the time the two civilians found Susan's body on the side of the road, Teresa and her sons were long gone. And on the way home that night, she threatened them saying, if you ever tell anyone about this, you'll be next. Along that drive, a bird also crashed into the windshield of their car. And in response, Teresa turned to her sons and said, that bird was a sacrifice. God thinks we did a good thing. That night after they returned home, Teresa made her daughters clean up the mess from Susan's botched surgery. And from there, they acted as if nothing ever happened. But Teresa was paranoid. She would often wake her sons up in the middle of the night, screaming at them to keep her secret. And they would. The body on the side of the road of Highway 89 was a huge mystery to investigators. No one knew who she was or who killed her. And for nearly a decade, Susan Knorr was simply referred to as Jane Doe 487384. Meanwhile, her mother, Teresa Knorr, would now direct her abuse towards her other daughter, Sheila. It is pretty typical for child abusers to single out one child and direct all of their anger towards them. In this story, Teresa had picked Susan, the daughter she thought was possessed by the devil. But now that she was dead, Teresa had to choose someone else. And unfortunately, the finger landed on her 20-year-old daughter, Sheila. It was obvious to everyone that Sheila was her mother's new target. And the severe abuse started immediately after her sister's death. In the winter of 1984, Teresa began telling the other siblings that Sheila was possessed by a demon. She would force her sons to grab Sheila by the arms and restrain her while she beat her with a paddle. Teresa also started making her daughter get down on her knees and stare at the floor for hours. If she moved, she would be kicked and punched by her mom. Sometimes Teresa would even tie her to the ground with bed sheets. Realizing that she was now the main subject of her mother's abuse, on top of losing her sister, Sheila fell into a deep depression. She even tried to open up to her mom about the way she was feeling. And in response, Teresa grabbed a gun, handed it to her daughter and said, 
If you're so depressed, then just kill yourself. And honestly, for her, it didn't sound like a bad way to go. Sheila took the gun from her mother and held it to her temple. And she just kept telling herself that whatever happens in the afterlife will be far better than this life on earth. And with that, she pulled the trigger. However, there were no bullets in the gun. Teresa had taken them out. By this point, there was no rhyme or reason to the abuse. And with each day, Teresa was growing more and more cruel. One day, Teresa realized she had gotten a sexually transmitted disease. And she was known to sleep around a lot, so it's not uncommon for people with a lot of sexual partners. But in Teresa's mind, her daughter was the one who gave it to her because they shared a toilet. That day, Sheila was just minding her own business when her mother stormed into the room and started screaming at her to admit that she had given her an STI. Sheila did what she could to try and convince her mother that she didn't, but it was just no use. Later that night, Teresa approached her sons and ordered them to throw Sheila in the linen closet. Sheila kicked and screamed and did everything she could to escape, but her brothers were stronger. Teresa made the boys tie her wrists and ankles with bandages, and from there, she was thrown into the dark closet. That night, the siblings could hear Sheila's screams echoing throughout the home, so Teresa just turned up the volume on the TV to drown it out. She also stuffed towels under the door to muffle her daughter's begging. For days, Sheila remained in that closet. She couldn't eat, she wasn't given any water, and she couldn't even use the bathroom. Tied up in that dark, cramped closet, Sheila begged for someone to help her. She held her urine in for as long as she could, but eventually, after hours of screaming, she just had to relieve herself right there. And then to make matters worse, she had to sit in it for days. And I can't help but think about what was going through Sheila's mind. Months earlier, she watched as her mother shot her sister in the chest. She then watched as Susan slowly died on their living room floor. And her mother didn't seem to care at all. And now, here is Sheila, tied up in that closet, soaked in her own urine and feces. For days, no one would even open the door to check on her. And all she could do was cry and scream. But it fell on deaf ears. It's heartbreaking to think about 20 years earlier, when Sheila was just a baby, her mother was doing the same thing. Like we mentioned, Sheila would be crying on the floor, reaching up towards her mom, just wanting to be held. But Teresa would look down at her baby and roll her eyes in disgust. 20 years later, not much has changed. But instead of begging for love and affection, Sheila was now begging for her life. She had been in that closet for about a week soaked in her own bodily fluids with no sunlight, food, or water. The closet was so small, she couldn't even stand up to stretch her body out. And to make matters worse, it was summertime. Teresa would turn off the air conditioning in the home and the temperature inside of that closet was unbearable. There was also no airflow and Sheila could feel herself slowly dying. One morning, Teresa had left the home to go to the store. So the youngest daughter, Terry, took this opportunity to help her sister. She ran over to the closet and opened the door. But when she did, Sheila was in far worse shape than she even realized. Upon opening it, her older sister fell to the ground, 
completely drenched in sweat. Her hands were still tied behind her back and she was only wearing socks and underwear. The smell inside of the closet was horrible from all of the urine and feces. And more than anything, Sheila just wanted some water. It had been days since she had anything to eat or drink and Terry wanted to help her, but she was nervous. Teresa had told the other siblings not to give Sheila anything to eat or drink. But Terry could tell by looking at her sister that she was going to die. She also knew that if her mom came home and saw her helping Sheila, she too would be thrown in the closet. Teresa was going to be home at any moment. So Terry grabbed the first drink she could find, which was beer. She quickly opened it and held it to her sister's lips. Sheila took a few sips, but then suddenly they heard the sound of their mother's car in the driveway. So Terry shoved Sheila back inside of the closet and shut the door on her dying sister. Sadly, the door wouldn't be opened for several more days. No one could ever quite recall just how long Sheila was tied up in that closet. Robert Jr. said that it was definitely for weeks on end. But the main thing the siblings remember from that time was the awful stench. By then, Sheila couldn't even cry anymore. She was too weak. Terry said that one of the last things she heard from the closet was her sister hallucinating. She heard Sheila mumble, there's a light above me. I'm gonna crawl towards it. Then soon after, they all heard a loud thud. Everyone knew that Sheila was likely dead. For the next few days, there was no sound or movement coming from the closet. But still, no one even opened it to check on her. Days later, on June 24, 1985, the stench from inside the closet became unbearable. So Teresa finally ordered her sons to open the closet door. Upon doing so, they all watched as Sheila rolled out of the closet onto her back. She was still half naked, tied with her hands behind her back, and she was skin and bones from not eating for weeks. And there was a vacancy in her eyes. Sheila Gay Sanders had died from starvation and dehydration. Her brother William would later say that her legs and feet were black with a pine cone-like pattern from where the blood had settled. And it was the most horrific sight they had ever seen. But there was no time to grieve. Teresa quickly hit her sons on the back of the head and ordered them to pick Sheila up. William and Robert tried their best to be careful with her body, but it was difficult. Her rotting skin was stuck to the closet floor. Her face had also begun to rot. And as the brothers moved her, they couldn't help but notice that their sister's nose had decomposed. But Teresa was unfazed. She simply grabbed a cardboard box and ordered her sons to place her inside of it. She had lined the box with pillowcases so that Sheila's body fluids would be soaked up. She also made sure to remove any hairs from the pillowcases so it wouldn't be traced back to her. And with that, William and Robert placed their sister inside and then carried the cardboard box to the trunk of their mother's car. From there, Teresa ordered Terry to stay behind and clean up the mess in the closet while she and her sons left to dispose of Sheila's body. 
Terry was only 14 years old at the time, and her two older sisters had been brutally murdered by their mother. And as she knelt down on the closet floor and cleaned up the remnants of Sheila's decomposition, she couldn't help but think that she was most likely next. Meanwhile, Teresa, William, and Robert were driving around Truckee County, trying to find a good place to dump Sheila's body. They ended up stopping near a secluded campground, and from there, they discarded her body like trash. They didn't even end up setting her on fire like they did with Susan. But still, just hours after Sheila was dumped, her body was discovered. A man named Elmer Barber had been cleaning up trash around his campground when he suddenly happened upon a large cardboard box. Curious, he decided to look inside, but he found an image that would be forever ingrained in his mind. Soon after, Elmer and his wife Hazel found themselves leading a half a dozen police officers down to the location of the box. Detectives could tell that the victim had clearly faced a tragic and painful death, but no one suspected that this was a child abuse case. And just like her sister Susan, Sheila would go unidentified for years. And for now, she was known as Jane Doe 660785. Within less than a year, William and Robert had been forced to participate in unspeakable acts. Helping their mother dispose of their two sisters' bodies is something no 17 and 18-year-old should ever have to experience. And after the ordeal with Sheila, they were done. By then, they were adults and they no longer wanted to participate in their mom's abuse. So they left home in severed ties. And it's around that time when Teresa became overly paranoid. Even though Terry had cleaned the floor of the closet, the smell of decomposition wouldn't go away. It had seeped into the floorboards, leaving a dark black stain. Teresa was terrified that the neighbors would smell it and alert the police. So she came up with a plan. She went out and purchased a gallon of gasoline and then ordered her daughter Terry to douse the apartment and set it ablaze. She even told Terry that if she did this for her, she would let her move out as well. And in Terry's mind, this was the best possible outcome. She could finally be free from her mother's grasp. So at around 3 a.m., she poured the gasoline throughout the apartment, lit a match, and within seconds, their home went up in flames. But as it turns out, Teresa's plan would fail. Soon after the fire started, neighbors would quickly alert the fire department, and within minutes, the fire was contained. The closet hadn't even been damaged. But somehow, the first responders didn't notice the decomposition soaked into the floorboards. Across town, Teresa was waiting for her daughter in a hotel room. After Terry set the apartment on fire, she slipped out of a window and made her way over to meet her mom. This was the moment she had been waiting for, for years. Now, Terry was only 14 years old, but she was determined to find a better life for herself. So she took her sister Sheila's ID so that she could pass as an adult. And from here, she moved to Salt Lake City, far away from the life she used to know. Now on the run after burning down their apartment, Teresa wanted to get away from Sacramento as well. She ended up in Reno, Nevada for a period of time. And from there, she started her new life without her kids. For years, she stayed under the radar as detectives in Sacramento worked tirelessly to identify their two Jane Does. But it wasn't easy. The first Jane Doe, Susan Knorr, was so badly burned, so finding out who she was was a nearly impossible task. 
Then a year later, they had their second Jane Doe, Sheila Sanders, who was badly decomposed as well. Both of the girls' cases would remain unsolved for years, as their mother continued on with life as if nothing ever happened. By 1991, Teresa's son Robert Jr. was in prison. He had shot and killed a bartender in Las Vegas during an armed robbery and was sentenced to 16 years in prison. After her son went off to prison, Teresa decided to relocate to Salt Lake City. And interestingly, that's where her daughter Terry had relocated to as well, though neither of them knew that they were living in the same city. But upon moving, Teresa also decided to change up her appearance. She cut her hair short and sometimes wore a blonde wig. She even converted to Mormonism. And like she always did throughout her life, she dressed in the nicest of clothes and did her best to look presentable. Now in her mid-40s, Teresa Nora looked like a lovely woman. If you were to have seen her walking down the street, you would never have known that she was a sadistic monster who murdered her two children. She even started applying to jobs as an at-home nurse for the elderly. Eventually, the Sullivan family came across her resume and they were thoroughly impressed, and they ended up hiring her to care for their 86-year-old mother, Alice. According to Alice's family, she was a wonderful nurse who took her job seriously. They loved Teresa and considered her to be family, but little did they know, Teresa was about to be exposed for being the monster that she was. By 1993, Terry Knorr was living in Salt Lake City, and she was struggling. For years, she had been trying to cope with the dark secret she had been holding on to. After watching her two sisters get murdered by her mother, Terry was understandably broken. She had developed a drinking problem, and it was hard for her to find companionship. At one point, she even told an officer about what happened to her when she was younger, but the story was too outlandish for her to be taken seriously. Terry had also spoken with a therapist about her childhood, but they too dismissed her. So by 1993, she kind of accepted the fact that her mother would never be caught. But then one day, she turned on the TV and started watching the popular true crime show, America's Most Wanted. It was her first time watching it. And at the end of the program, John Walsh urged the viewers to call their tip line if anyone had knowledge of a crime. So immediately, Terry grabs the phone and dials the number on the screen. After telling them what happened to her sisters, Terry was given the number of the Sacramento Police Department. And from there, she called them to report about what happened to her two sisters. Eventually, Terry was put in contact with Officer John Fitzgerald, the man who worked her sister's cases all those years back. And as you can imagine, he was elated to hear that the two unsolved John Doe cases were finally about to be solved. After Terry gave her statement to the police, she was shocked to find out that her mother had been living just 25 miles away from her all this time. And soon enough, investigators would be knocking at Teresa's doorstep with a few questions. At the time, she had actually been living with 86-year-old Alice Sullivan as her full-time live-in nurse. When Teresa opened the door that day to see a detective on the doorstep, all of the color flushed from her face. We're looking for Teresa Knorr, he said, but the lady in front of them had been going by Teresa Cross. Teresa hesitantly let the detectives inside and was reluctant to tell them that she was indeed the woman they were looking for. When she was shown the warrant for her arrest, she calmly told the detectives that she needed to make a phone call first. She needed to make sure Alice, her patient, was being taken care of before she left. And from there, she dialed Bud Sullivan, Alice's son. When she told him that she was being arrested, Bud was shocked. 
Teresa had been nothing but a blessing to their family. And Teresa acted confused as to why the detectives were even there. But when it was time to place her under arrest, she didn't act like an innocent woman. In fact, Teresa even tried to make a run for it out the back door. But the officers were able to quickly apprehend her. And as she was placed in cuffs, she yelled out, I feel like a sacrificial lamb being led to the slaughter. Teresa Noor was charged with two counts of murder. And the town of Salt Lake City was about to learn that a monster was living among them. But interestingly enough, as detectives were unveiling Teresa's past, they came across another murder in her family. If you remember from earlier, Teresa had an older sister named Rosemary. After the two moved out of their childhood home, they had lost touch. But in 1983, Rosemary had been found strangled to death off a dead-end road in Placer County. Detectives would later find that Teresa couldn't have been responsible for her sister's murder, but it was eerie that one single family could be met with so much tragedy. Sadly, Rosemary's murder would never be solved, but luckily, Susan and Sheila would finally get the justice they deserved. After Teresa was arrested, investigators quickly located both William and Robert and placed them under arrest for their part in the murders. Now, William and Robert would end up getting lighter sentences for testifying against their mother. And for many people, including the prosecutor, they actually viewed them as victims. Even though they were adults when they participated in the crimes, it was very clear to everyone that they were terrified of their mother and they did whatever they had to do to avoid her abuse. Teresa's oldest son, Howard, spoke to the Fresno Bee, and he really painted a picture of what life was like in their home. He said, quote, I want people to understand that it's not my brother's fault. They were children at the time, and she had total control over them. She was crazy, but she was the adult, end quote. Robert was already serving time for that second-degree murder charge, but because he helped with his mother's murder case, he would only be charged with accessory after the fact. He also got a three-year prison sentence, but it was to be served concurrently with the jail time he was already facing, so he wouldn't get any additional prison time. William's attorney managed to get his murder charges dropped as well. His attorney told the court that William had been raised in a cage and tortured by the zookeeper, which was an accurate representation of their lives. William was given a three-year suspended sentence, which meant that he didn't actually have to go to jail. Instead, he was put on five years probation and was ordered to go to therapy for the PTSD he had faced over the years. Years later, William Nor would be interviewed for the show Wicked Attraction, where he said, They asked me, why didn't you come forward? And the obvious clear answer was, look what happened to the people who did. He goes on to say that Susan herself had been in the hands of Child Protective Services, had told the story, and was dismissed. Afterward, she was placed back in the hands of Teresa and sent to her grave. He went on to say of his mother, I never saw any sign of remorse from my mother, ever. And this is the face of my torturer. After finding out that her sons would be testifying against her, Teresa decided to make a plea deal. She would plead guilty to both of her daughter's murder in order to take the death penalty off the table. Her trial began on June 29, 1994 when officers escorted Teresa into the courtroom. Her ex-husband, Bob Knorr, screamed from the row of onlookers. With tears running down his cheeks, he screamed out, 
I hope you burn in hell for what you did to my kids. A bailiff ordered him to be quiet, and the former Marine sat quietly in his seat for the remainder of the day. However, outside of the courtroom, he had a few more words. Bob Knorr made it clear that he wanted Teresa dead, and he told reporters, quote, my daughter's in her grave and will be there forever. Why should she be able to live out the rest of her life? William Knorr would later say that he was completely caught off guard when seeing his mother in the courtroom. He was so anxious at the sight of his mom, he actually had to leave the courtroom due to distress. In the video of the court hearing, you can see him watching his feet and looking away with his jaw clenched. His face mimicked a frightened child who was awaiting punishment. William would later say that he would never see his mother again after that day. During the victim impact statements, her son Robert turned to his mother and said, quote, my mother cruelly and calculatingly tortured her victims, both physically and mentally, over the course of years, killing them in every way possible, over and over again. We have all been sentenced to life without parole, reliving our own private nightmares in the early hours, imprisoned in our memories." End quote. And with that, on October 17, 1995, Teresa Knorr was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences, and she physically trembled when she realized her fate. Just 31 years prior, Teresa was sitting in another courtroom, accused of murdering her first husband, Clifford Sanders. But she wouldn't be so lucky this time around. From here, Teresa Knorr was taken away to serve out her two life sentences. And for the first time in decades, her surviving children could breathe a sigh of relief. Their nightmare was over. But after everything that had happened, there was still one person who was suffering. Terry, like her brothers, did what she had to do to survive. But she lived with guilt for the rest of her life. Her final thoughts about all that had happened to her were shared in the book Mother's Day, saying, I live with a certain numbness. When you're a child, you really don't pay all that much attention to what family means. It's just there. But when you become an adult, family becomes the most important thing of all. I had sisters. They were family and they were taken away from me by my mother, who was also family. I lived with that all those years and it ate away at me. Now I'm having to search for the answers that I never got before. Sadly, Terry would end up passing on December 8th, 2011 from heart failure in her St. Joseph, Missouri home. She was only 41 years old. Since her conviction, Teresa Knorr has been serving out her two life sentences at the California Institution for Women. She doesn't accept visitors, but she does still write to friends and her former employers in Utah. Interestingly enough, California approved a elderly parole suitability program that considers parole for elderly inmates. Teresa Knorr was eligible for this parole in 2019, but they declined to release her. But horrifyingly, she's eligible for parole again this very year in 2024. She will be 78 years old, so the question is, is Teresa Knorr still a danger to society? Maybe not. But if we could have a conversation with Susan and Sheila, her two daughters, I wonder what they would say. Susan would probably think back to the time when her mother shot her in the chest and refused to take her to the hospital. 
she would think back to the day where her mom burned her alive on the side of the road. Sheila would likely recall the week she spent locked in that small closet without food, water, or a bathroom. I would assume that they would never want their mom to see the light of day. So let's just hope when the parole board reviews Teresa's case, they think about Susan and Sheila's final days and the hell they faced at the hands of their mother, who some call the worst mother in America. Hey everybody, it's Colin here. Thank you so much for joining us for our first episode of 2024. Wow, guys, we have an absolutely incredible year ahead of us. I mean, Courtney and I have so many projects that we're working on that we cannot wait to announce and talk to you guys about, but we just can't spill any details yet. But just be on the lookout and be ready for this year. It's going to be a big one. So if you like our show, you can't get enough of Murder in America, head on over to patreon.com and search Murder in America. If you sign up to become a patron, you can get up to four full-length bonus episodes of the show every single month. For just $5 a month, if you donate to the show, you can get access to every single episode early and ad-free. For $10 a month, you get all of that, plus two full-length bonus episodes of the show. And for $20 a month, you get a bonus episode every single week. We love posting on there and connecting with everybody on Patreon and talking to everybody. It's a super fun time. So if you love the show, you want to support us, Patreon is a good way to do that. You can also follow us on Instagram at Murder in America if you want to see photos from every single case that we cover. But Courtney and I just wanted to wish everybody a very, very happy New Year's. Welcome to 2024. And we have some really big things coming up in the new year. But we love y'all. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you on the next one.